0: our scripture lesson this morning is from Exodus chapter 25 verses 1 through 9 give you a minute to find that in your Bible if you need a Bible feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you again reading from Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9 the Lord said to Moses tell the Israelites to bring me an offering you are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, achaea wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of service, I have a bit of a cold, which I do not say to complain because I know that as a man, I am probably prone to complaining too much about having a cold. But to explain why I um, may well be sniffling my way through our study of God's Word, and just so you know, if by the time we get to the Lord's table, I'm talking like this, that's what's going on. With that said, let's pray and turn to God's Word. Father, Pray that you would be teaching us now as we prepare to learn about you, as you reveal yourself to us. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the place that a person lives can actually teach us a lot about who that person is. I always find it interesting to visit people's houses, maybe especially when they've designed their house or remodeled their house. But you can, like you can go into their kitchen often and, and kind of know like, oh, like this person really loves to cook or doesn't really love to cook. You can, if they have like a big office or you know, the man cave downstairs with the sports stuff all over the walls or a big workshop where they can do woodworking or whatever, you, you learn about a person. And even in more subtle ways, as you pay attention to some of the decorations that they have hanging up and the choices that they've made in their home, the place that a person lives can actually tell us quite a bit about who that person is. And that is certainly what is going on here in Exodus. We read from the beginning of Exodus 25, and all of Exodus 25 through 30 is really this long set of instructions on how to build this tabernacle. This place where God is going to come dwell with his people. And it is rich in symbolic and ceremonial language. And it is also rich in lots and lots of details. And so what we are going to do, this is kind of different from the norm. If you've been here for a while, you know that generally we just go chapter by chapter, and preach through um, books, but we are going to today cover all of Exodus 25 through 30, and we're going to kind of do it from a bird's-eye view to just talk about all of these instructions for building the tabernacle, and then as we're doing that, I want us to just really be asking two questions. The first one is, what does this tent where God is pictured as dwelling tell us about who he is, because like we said, the place a person lives can teach us a lot about who they are. So what does this tabernacle teach us about who God is, and then also how does it connect to Jesus and how we should think about him? So first of all, let's just talk about the tabernacle. First of all, I'll just put up some pictures up here as we go, but this is what the tabernacle looks like as a whole. And it consists of this tent in the middle, which is this tent of meeting. And then around it, there is a courtyard and a wall. And this thing was built in the middle of Israel's camp. And it traveled with them throughout their wanderings through the wilderness. And the first thing we should just note before we dig into the details is what that thing as a whole represents. When we use the word tabernacle, that sounds kind of mysterious and fancy, right? But that is actually just the Latin word for tent. And in fact, that's kind of indicative of how the Bible talks about this thing. If you saw in our reading, in verses 8 and 9, God says to Moses to have Israel make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So first he calls this place a sanctuary, meaning a holy place. But he says it's a holy place where he can dwell with Israel. And then the NIV translates that word tabernacle again, but that's just the word for a dwelling place, right? God is making his house. It's the same word you use for any dwelling place. And then if you go on through Exodus 25 through 30, you also see it regularly called a tent. So God says, make this holy place, but what it's supposed to be is a house. In fact, a tent, which would have sounded very ordinary if you were an ancient Israelite at this time. That's kind of the point that that language is trying to make. You were dwelling in tents out in the wilderness, and God was dwelling in a tent living in your midst. You would walk through the camp, and you'd be like, oh yeah, there's Eliab's tent, and there's Gamaliel's tent, and there's the Lord's tent. And it would have, um, in a real sense, stood as just a marker that God is dwelling with these people in the same way that they were dwelling. While many of the other parts of the tabernacle speak to God's holiness, and we'll get there in a minute, we cannot lose this starting place. The tabernacle as a whole is meant to communicate the idea that God is coming to live with his people. Now, to be clear, ancient Israelites understood that God did not literally live in this tent. The Old Testament is full of clear declarations that God fills the whole earth, right? And he doesn't dwell in places made by human hands. But what this represented was God's special presence and care dwelling in the midst of Israel. All right, so that's the thing as a whole. And then with that out of the way, let's start working our way through the tabernacle and see what is going on. First of all, like we said, around the tent is a courtyard. Um, And around the courtyard is this long wall that's about seven and a half feet high, meaning you couldn't see over the thing from outside. When you walked by, you know, you would have just seen the wall. Um, it is made of linen curtains And there's blue and purple and scarlet curtains over the gate Those are like royal colors But to enter even the courtyard and even just see inside of this place You had to go through there And even to enter this courtyard would have required something of you If you were an ancient Israelite In the Old Testament, God gives regulations about ceremonially clean and unclean things You would do these things as an Israelite that would make you ceremonially unclean. And to be clear, that's not the same thing as sinful. This is actually something if you spend time reading through the Pentateuch, the first few books of the Bible, people ask about. They see all these things that make you unclean and they're like, well, what's wrong with that? The answer is nothing. In fact, lots of normal stuff made you unclean. Um, burying a dead body made you ceremonially unclean, but like you weren't, you didn't just leave grandpa out, right? (laughs) You, You know, you had to bury it. Childbirth and both parts of the male and female reproductive act would make you ceremonially unclean. Um, And again, you had to do that stuff or you were going to be the last generation of Israelites. Um, Even offering certain sacrifices in the tabernacle would make the priest unclean and then they had to go be purified even though God commanded them to make sacrifices. So the point of that is not that those things are wrong, just to be clear, but the point of that was to say that just by being biologically human after our rebellion against God, there is a distance that we have from God. And so when you became unclean, you would go through a process of purifying yourself um, through ritual washings or waiting a certain amount of time. And the reason that we discussed all of that is you could not even enter the courtyard of the tabernacle if you were not ceremonially unclean. So you couldn't even go through the gates into the courtyard. Um, I mean, every Israelite would have regularly been in a position where they were unclean and had to be purified before they could come even into the courtyard of the tabernacle. All right? That said, let's say you're ceremonially clean and you go walking through that gate and now you're in the courtyard. You would see a couple of things in there. First, you would see this huge bronze altar, and that was where burnt offerings were offered. It was really the centerpiece of the courtyard, and on it, sacrifices were given up to God. Now, we're not going to discuss how sacrifices worked as a whole, but The very simple thing to understand is that Israel was given these sacrifices to offer to remind them that they were sinners and needed God's grace to cover and forgive their sins. That they were sinners and needed God's grace. They offered these sacrifices. And the really remarkable thing, if you pay attention is that if Israel came anywhere close to offering all the sacrifices that they were supposed to, this altar would have been constantly in use. Like if you lived by the tabernacle, I mean, it would have just smelled like blood and burning meat continually because these sacrifices were constantly being offered up to God and hence providing a reminder of our sin and need for sacrifice. In addition, in the altar, there was this big basin of water. And this water was for that ceremonial cleansing that we talked about, but not for the people. This water was mainly for the priests, which is to say the other big piece of furniture in the courtyard was where the priests had to go cleanse themselves before they could offer the sacrifices or go into the tent, which we'll get to in a minute which is to say that there's this visible symbol that even the priests are unworthy to come into God's presence that's out in this courtyard as well, that you went in there and you offered your sacrifices and you saw the priests have to go be purified by God before they could even come and offer up your sacrifices. The people need these sacrifices and cleansing and their leaders, the priests, do. All right. So that's the courtyard. And then let's zoom in on the tabernacle itself, on the tent where God is pictured as dwelling. First of all, like we said, it's a tent. It's covered in four layers of cloth and animal skin. It's supported by poles overlaid with gold. Everything in the outer courtyard tends to be made of bronze, and the stuff in the tabernacle tends to be made of gold to show that it's this elevated place. And again, there's a curtain with those royal colors forming the gateway. But most Israelites never passed that curtain. The only people who could ever pass that curtain into the tent were the priests, and then only after they had gone through a process of ceremonial cleansing and for certain tasks. But inside that tent, then, it's divided into two sections. The outer one is called the holy place, and that is where priests would come and do certain duties. In the holy place, there's three pieces of furniture. First, there's a table that is covered in gold, and on it are 12 loaves of bread, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it seems to be this picture of their fellowship and connection with God, right? That in God's house, there's this table where they are represented. But notice that the Israelites could never actually come to this table in the holy place, even though they were represented there by the, by the 12 loaves of bread, that the priests would come once a week and kind of eat it in the presence of God but even though this was a table where the Lord was symbolized as like being with Israel, Israel couldn't come to it. Then there's a lampstand um, with seven lamps that is modeled on a flowering almond tree. And that um, there's a lot of symbolism in the lampstand in the Old Testament. It's probably meant to be an image itself of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And it gets pictured... By Scripture as representing both God's light and spirit shining, and the way His people are supposed to shine like a light. But there's that lamp, and then there is an altar of incense, which is also made of gold. And every morning and evening, the priests would come here and offer incense before this curtain that um, that represented kind of where God lived. We'll get there in a minute. But they would offer up the incense. Um, And it seems to represent the prayers and praises of God's people coming up before him. But again, the people can't even go in this place. And one other really striking thing about that, that altar of incense was actually lit from the coals from the big bronze altar outside. So the way that they would offer up the incense is by taking the fires of the sacrifices and taking the coals from like the charred burnt offerings and using them to light the incense. All right, so that is that holy place. We're almost through, but there's still one more step because even this holy place is not pictured as where God dwells. Dividing it from the back part of the tent is one more set of blue and purple and scarlet curtains, and those are woven with pictures of cherubim, which maybe you've heard about and we'll mention again in a minute. Cherubim are these ancient creatures that are pictured as sort of like heavenly beings or super angels, and they have like bodies of lions or bulls and human heads and wings, but they're meant to represent sort of heaven and the heavenly courts of God. And behind that curtain is the most holy place. That is a place that is pictured as where God actually is in the tabernacle, and only the high priest could go in there on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, and the rest of the time nobody was allowed to go into the most holy place. And in the most holy place was the Ark of the covenant which is where everyone gets interested because of indiana jones and you know nazis and stuff but basically the ark of the covenant itself was a box it was a box that was covered in gold and inside of it were the stone tablets that god wrote the law on and later there's there's added to it a a little bit of the manna that God gave Israel in the wilderness and Aaron's staff. But then on top of the box are these two cherubim that are facing inward with their faces covered. And it seems in the Old Testament that what it's supposed to represent is sort of like God's throne, which is to say it's called a seat in the Old Testament. And you would almost picture that God somehow sits down between these cherubim, and that's an earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. And that's where God is pictured as actually present within the tabernacle, and remember, basically no one could ever go there and meet with him. All right, so that is a whirlwind tour, but that is the tabernacle, and um, what's striking about it is that on the one hand, most Israelites could not have gone into much of that place, but all of them would have known what was in there and what was going on. One other note about the tabernacle if you are studying the Bible is that later on Solomon builds a temple and the temple is in essence just a continuation of the tabernacle. They replace this tent with a more permanent house as Israel lives in Jerusalem in this permanent place but its layout is basically the same with the outer courtyard for the sacrifices and the holy place and the most holy place and so even in Jesus' time when you see him at the temple while some things have changed in that they've split the courtyard into a couple of different areas and added a couple other little things, basically it's the same thing that Jesus is talking about. But With that said, with all of that information, what do we make of that tent where God lives? And what does that teach us about him and about us? Well, First of all, let me just name the big themes. And you might have already picked up on them as we walked through it. First of all god is holy that is probably the biggest single thing that the tabernacle is meant to stress that whenever we talk about god we need to recognize we're talking about somebody who is way beyond us and who we cannot approach in ourselves and alongside that it also stresses that we are sinful Throughout this whole process of cleansings and sacrifices and offerings and lighting the incense with the the stuff from the sacrifice, you have all these themes about the fact that we are sinful and need purification and sacrifice to come before God. But in spite of that, the tabernacle would also remind us that God nonetheless moves towards us, that he is coming and seeking to dwell in our midst, that week in and week out... Um, Israel would have recognized that while they cannot come before God, there is a sense in which he seeks to live among them and draw near to them. And that would have created this sense of tension for them, which is really just shot through the tabernacle. This sense of tension between the fact that God is holy and we cannot come near to him, but God is seeking to draw near to us and invite us into his presence. And it's that tension that I really want us to camp out on then, for the rest of this morning, because it leads us, then, to discuss how all of that stuff about the tabernacle is connected to Jesus, because in Jesus, we see those themes start to be resolved. Now, first, just let me explain what I mean, because I know some of us might hear that and be like, what does Jesus have to do with the tabernacle? (laughs) But in the Old Testament, there are a couple of types of laws There are some parts of the Old Testament that express God's moral law, like the Ten Commandments, which we studied, and when we look at the Ten Commandments, we have to say, okay, those are just true commands about how God created the world that we're all called to follow. There are other parts of the Old Testament law that discuss what we would call civil law, which is to say Israel is unique because it is both the church, it is God's religious people and it's a state. And in Israel that's fused. And so there's parts of the law that are discussing how Israel just works as a political entity. And those are not binding on us anymore as Christians, because there is no nation today that is like that, right? Our country is not like the church and the state. No country is. And but we can still learn things from the civil law, but that's not binding on us. And then in the old testament there's lots of ceremonial laws lots of ceremonial laws. And we've talked about a bunch of those already this morning. The sacrifices and being ritually clean and unclean. And the tabernacle itself is a part of that ceremonial law. And then also all the stuff about like what you could eat and what kinds of cloth you could wear and what days were holy. Um, and the thing about that ceremonial law, the thing we need to understand is that on the one hand, the New Testament says that that is not binding on Christians anymore that we do not, and in fact should not, do those things anymore. Um, just to be clear about that, that's something Acts, Galatians, you know, like all over the New Testament, it, it, you will find that, you know, it says that that's the case, but the reason for that is not because those things don't matter. The reason for that is because those things have been fulfilled in Jesus, Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. After saying that you don't need to observe these clean and unclean food laws and other ritual days, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, which is to say from the beginning, these things were not the goal. Um, They were meant to teach us truths that made us long for Jesus and helped us understand Jesus when he came. Or to put it another way, that, that tension that we felt with the tabernacle is one of many tensions that the ceremonial law makes us feel that then are meant to make us see how they're reconciled in Jesus. To understand Jesus, we have to actually understand the Old Testament, to understand him fully. He uses the categories of that, this Old Testament law and fulfills them in himself. But then also for us as Christians, that means that if we're reading that Old Testament law, We need to see how they're fulfilled in Jesus. We need to recognize how he is coming and drawing that together. And to do that then, as we finish up this morning, I want to suggest four ways that Jesus fulfills all of this. Four ways Jesus fulfills all this stuff from the tabernacle. First is simply that Jesus is God tabernacling with us. Jesus is God tabernacling with us. Remember, the point of the tabernacle was that God was coming to live with Israel. He says, I'm coming to dwell with them, and this is my dwelling place. God lives there. And then listen to these familiar words from John chapter 1, which if you've been here or at almost any church in Christmas, you would have heard, but it says, The word, which is ultimately Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That phrase, made his dwelling among us, interestingly, that is a specific Greek word that literally means pitched his tent among us. You could very easily translate John 1.14 as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is a part of what Jesus was seeking to do. Throughout his ministry, Jesus pictures himself in terms of the tabernacle and the temple. For example, just one chapter later in John, in John 2, when the Pharisees ask for a sign, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John spells out for us if we miss it, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is saying, like, my body is like this temple, this place where God comes to dwell among humanity. It's actually one of the ways in the New Testament that we see Jesus claim to be divine. There are some people who wonder, like, why doesn't Jesus run around being like, hey, guys, I'm God, you know, I'm the Lord of the universe, and just really explicitly spell that out. And part of the answer is that he would have gotten killed immediately had he done that. And in fact, the times that he comes the closest to doing that are right before his crucifixion. But another part of the answer is that he regularly talks about himself in ways that any first century Jewish person would have recognized as claiming that place of divinity. And this is an example of that. When Jesus compares himself, which he regularly does, to God's temple, and says, yeah, that's, that's me, basically, right? He's saying, like, yeah, like, the place where God comes and dwells in your midst as human beings is in me. Do the math. So that's um, the first thing that... Um, That we're supposed to recognize is that Jesus, in Jesus it means that when God says he's going to come live in our midst, that's not just a metaphor, right? That doesn't just mean that, you know, he really cares about us, although he does. He literally comes as a human being to live among us as human beings, as one of us in Jesus Christ. To that fulfillment of the tabernacle, let's add a second one, which is that Jesus is the high priest who enters for us. Jesus is the high priest who enters God's presence. One of the things we see in the tabernacle is our need for what's called a mediator. A mediator is like a go-between, somebody who, you know, would mediate between two parties. And the priests, and especially the high priest, serve that role in the tabernacle. That on the one hand, they um, represent the people before God, and on the one hand, they represent God before the people, because there was this separation that God and the people could not cross in themselves. Now, listen to how the author of Hebrews describes the work of Jesus in Hebrews 9. He says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of creation. So first we're like, okay, he's talking about the tabernacle, but what's this greater and more perfect tabernacle? But that seems to be referring to... Back in Exodus 25, 9, which we read, God tells Moses to make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And he repeats this over and over in the next chapters, which is to say what's actually happening is Moses has a vision of God's heavenly home, right? He has a vision of God's heavenly court, and, um, and he takes the imagery of that vision, and then he translates it into the earthly tabernacle to represent that. What the author of Hebrews then says is what's happening in Jesus is that Jesus goes into that heavenly tabernacle, that the earthly tabernacle is just a representation of, but he goes through it into God's presence in it as our high priest so that he can now give us access there. According to the author of Hebrews, Jesus enters the throne room as our mediator just like the high priest would have entered the most holy place as Israel's mediator. And because of that, that means that we have a radically new way of approaching God. A little later in Hebrews 10, he says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. which is to say the priest is this representative before God of the people and a representative of God to the people, but he is a deeply flawed and imperfect representative in this tabernacle system. He has to constantly be purified just so that he's not destroyed (laughs) trying to be the mediator. But Jesus, as God himself, as this perfect mediator, actually represents us before God and actually represents God to us in a way that means that we can actually enter into communion with God. Notice that language there of being sprinkled clean in our hearts and having our guilty consciences and bodies washed. That's to say that that kind of cleanliness that um, the tabernacle is constantly demanding in a deep soul kind of way is made true of us in Jesus. And all of that is accomplished because of the third thing that Jesus tells us about the tabernacle, which is that he's also the sacrifice offered for us. He's the sacrifice offered offered for us one of the striking things about the new testament is how it takes these separate images from the old testament law and applies them all to jesus and so this is an example if you look at hebrews 9 again i'm going to start reading what we read a minute ago about the high priest and keep reading it says that christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of creation, but he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So Jesus is the high priest and Jesus is the sacrifice itself. As he's offered up for us, then that need that we have, that sin and that need for forgiveness, that the constant offering of the sacrifices represented to these people in Old Testament Israel, Jesus has fulfilled that need for us by paying our guilt so that we can come before God. As Hebrews 10 goes on to say, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. So Jesus opens this path to God by being our representative, and he makes us worthy to move into God's presence by being our sacrifice. And then that moves us to the final truth, which is that Jesus opens the most holy place to us. This is the unexpected place that the New Testament ultimately takes it, that Jesus opens that most holy place to us. Something really remarkable happens in the moment Jesus dies. Remember, we said the temple in Jerusalem is based on this tabernacle, and inside the temple, you've got the holy place and the most holy place with that same curtain separating them that only the high priest could enter once a year. Listen from Matthew 27 to what happens at the moment of Jesus' death. It says that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top. To bottom. That's the curtain separating the most holy place, and from top to bottom, right? So, not by some human being, from God's direction, it is ripped open. Here's how the author of Hebrews talks about that same idea. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. So that tearing of the curtain represents the reality that to enter the most holy place is something that we are now able to do through Jesus. It's not just some high priest once a year. It is that we are actually able to come there. As Jesus' body is broken on the cross, the barrier between us and God is ultimately torn down. All of which is to say this, we said there's a tension in the tabernacle between God's desire to dwell with us as his people and the distance that his holiness and our sin causes. What we're meant to recognize in Jesus is that he is the way that God solves that tension. That he is God coming to dwell with us and draw near to us as a human being and that as that perfect human being and God in the flesh, he is able to suffer as our sacrifice and draw us near to God. And because of that, while God is still holy and while we are still sinful, that distance between us and him has been crossed by Jesus. And so we are able to come and live in the presence of God. How should that affect our lives? Let me just close with two thoughts. First, That should tell us that Jesus is essential. That whenever we think about what it means to be a Christian, Jesus needs to be essential. Which should be really obvious, but somehow a lot of Christians spend a lot of time talking about things other than Jesus. I mean, how is it that our prayers are heard this morning? Jesus is a mediator representing us before the throne room of God. How does God view us, right? When he looks at us when, when we come into relationship with him. It's Jesus' righteousness that covers our sins and gives us good standing before God. How do we experience God's presence? It's by being united to Jesus as he draws us near to the Father and as he brings the Father near to us. We have to return continually in our faith to Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. If we're not living there and rejoicing in that, then we have missed the central hope and promise of Christianity you got to keep coming back to Jesus. And then the second thing that this should teach us is that the salvation that Jesus works is astounding. Salvation is astounding. The access to God that we have should drive us to our knees and tear praises from our lips. I mean, think about prayer, right? When, when people talk about prayer, a lot of times we talk about it as a spiritual discipline. And that is a good and useful way to talk about prayer, because we should discipline ourselves to do it. But the only reason it's a spiritual discipline is because of the sin in our hearts that keeps us from recognizing what an incredible privilege prayer also is. I mean, we get to come into the presence of God and talk to him and hear from him and call him father. And that is crazy when you understand what God is like and what we are like. I mean, when you know when, when I get up here you know, and, you know, on Sunday morning and I'm like, oh, dear Father, like, my face should melt as I presume to come into the presence of God and, you know, and talk with him. Like I am not deserving of that. But by his grace, in Jesus, God has crossed the distance of his holiness and our sin and draws near to us so that we can actually live in his presence and speak to him and hear from him. And that should astound our hearts. Or think about, think about this table where we're going to come in just a minute and celebrate the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's a lot going on at the table, but part of it is meant to be this image of God and Jesus coming to eat with us. And you think about, you think about that in light of that table in the tabernacle, right? That taber, table that's meant to represent God's presence and communion with his people, but where the people could never come because they could not enter into the presence of God. What God does in Jesus is come down to our table and meet with us and invite us to come and dine with him. And the way he does it is through the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood. We are invited to experience God's presence with us when we come. That is what salvation promises us. And the more we understand what is happening there, the more that should astonish us and draw us to joy. We are invited to experience and live in God's presence. That is a beautiful thing that should stir our hearts. So let's live with that hope, and let's prepare our hearts to celebrate the table now with that hope. Would you pray with me? Father, you are holy. You have come to tabernacle with us. I pray that we would find much joy in knowing your presence with us that we might daily experience the ministry of Christ to our hearts and live with the assurance that he has secured us access before your throne. Pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Friends, as we now prepare to celebrate the table, we do so um, using the words that profess this hope we have in what Jesus has done that the church has used now for almost 2,000 years in the Apostles' Creed. So if you would join with me in the words printed in your bulletin of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God. Friends, as we said, this table is meant to represent God's presence with us. The reason God gives us visible means of understanding him is because we need to be visibly reminded of the fact that he is near to us. And so as you come, have your heart nourished and built up in the fact that as as near as you are, as near as these elements are to you, right? As you take them into yourself, so near has God drawn near to you in Jesus Christ. A couple of practical instructions about the table if you um, this it doesn't belong to our church or to our denomination it belongs to Jesus and so as long as you are a part of his church somewhere and profess his name and just are a believer in him, as long as you're seeking to make that your hope, then we would invite you to come <laughs> um, If that's a place where you are not at and you don't know that you profess this story as your own, again, feel welcome and feel welcome to join us in all different ways in our fellowship as a congregation. The one thing we would ask you not to do is to come to the table simply because it is to act out a hope with your hands. And if that hope isn't also true of your heart, that puts you in a place of hypocrisy. But if this is the story that you're trusting in, if through Jesus Christ you know you can enter God's presence, we would invite you to come. Friends, as it was delivered to me, so I give it to you, that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it, in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the meal, our Lord took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks for the table. God thank you that in Jesus Christ you have drawn near to us. May you now minister him to our hearts and may we confidently approach you through His sacrifice. Amen. Just a couple of last.